You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You shall not sacrifice to Yahweh your God an ox or a sheep, in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to Yahweh your God. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that Yahweh your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, Then you shall arise and go up to the place that Yahweh your God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that Yahweh will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, And according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before Yahweh your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, 
and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 664 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. And that was a reading for you of Deuteronomy 17. Some very interesting stuff here. Very, very interesting pertaining to the kings that Israel doesn't have yet. (laughs) Uh, The priests, which have already been introduced. The idea of the Levitical priesthood has already been introduced. The judges or the idea of having judges in Israel, that's already been introduced. But kings are anticipated by God. God knows his people. He knows what they're going to do. He knows that there's a tendency for free peoples to want to have a resemblance to the nations around them, to kind of want to be... uh, Conformists, so to speak, to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, when they look around them, when they know that they're going to have relations with the surrounding nations. They're, I can, I, they could have friendly relations, sure. They could have trade, but they're also potentially going to have wars or they're going to have to negotiate when there are disagreements. If they can resemble those nations in certain ways, they're going to want to at a certain point in the interest of being diplomatic and fitting in and getting a favorable reception. But there are warnings here about when they decide they want to have a king. (laughs) When they say, I will set a king over me and they will speak as one nation, they will decide as a people, as one man, I want a king like all the nations that are around me. And that's the reason, right? That's the reason they're going to want to have a king because the other nations have kings. When they say that, what does God say? You may, (laughs) you can, you can have a king too. In due time, you may, but who's going to choose the king? God is going to choose the king. So they will choose that they want the king But God will choose who the king is going to be. And it can't be a foreigner. It's not supposed to be somebody not from there. It's supposed to be a native of the country. It's supposed to be one of this people, Israel, one among their brothers. But then what's interesting is even just in Deuteronomy 17, we have something of what Samuel Rutherford writes about in Lex Rex. You might have missed it. If you zoned out, if you got distracted while I was reading it, but key in with me on what is said here. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, 
and you possess it and dwell in it. So you have God giving land and also the people possessing the land, both and, right? Both are happening simultaneously. Which is it? Is God giving them the land or are they taking the land? Yes, (laughs) both, both and. It's not either or, it's both and. And dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you. So again, who's doing the setting? Israel is doing the setting of a king over Israel. Whom Yahweh your God will choose. Okay, so who is doing the choosing? God is doing the choosing. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. So who's doing the setting? Israel. So who's doing the choosing? Who's doing the setting? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And this, by the way, Samuel Rutherford, when he writes in Lex Rex about this in the early 17th century, as a Scots Presbyterian minister, when he writes about this, he is not just being random. He is responding to a very real political problem and theological problem, a very real social problem. That is this idea of the divine right of kings that does not recognize the voice of the people, the voice of the nation, the voice of those who are subject to the king. Who chooses the king? The divine right of kings proponents ask. It's God. See? And that's true. Yes. That's true. But (laughs) read on. Read on. Also, the people, also the nation chooses. Also, the nation, the people within the nation set the king. But as we read on still farther, we find more interesting things, more interesting things that are to be kept in mind. God gives warnings against the accumulation of many horses, right? How many is too many? It doesn't say. (laughs) Use your best judgment and we'll have a rubric. Just stay tuned, right? How many horses is too many? Well, just keep listening. He must not acquire many horses, verse 16, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And so here we have a limitation on the king's authority to command the people. Just because God has chosen this man to be king, just because the people have set him as king, that does not mean that from there he has a blank check to do whatever he wants with his authority. No, he is not to cause the people order the people, manipulate the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Why? Because God said, and I quote, you shall never return that way again, end quote. Also, verse 17 is very interesting as something like a parallel to verse 16. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, What's the reason, right? What is the reason for not acquiring many wives? And by the way, how many is too many wives? Here's God's opportunity, if you want to think of it that way, to forbid polygamy. And in the New Testament, we see the qualifications for overseers and deacons must be the husband of one wife. God could have so easily said here, must be the husband of one wife. He doesn't. God doesn't say that here. 
He just says, verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Why? What's the big deal? (laughs) In our day, the way these things are presented to us, it's entirely from the standpoint of what will society think, or it's from the standpoint of, well, what would that do to your first wife? And that's not God's reason. That's not the reason he gives. The reason God gives for a king not acquiring, quote unquote, many wives is his heart will be turned away. The king's heart will be turned away. Turned away from what? Turned away from who? If you were listening only to contemporary voices today and you weren't paying attention very closely to this passage, you might say, turned away from his first wife, (laughs) right? But then that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit the context. That doesn't fit the rest of the verse. That doesn't fit with the larger narrative of the Old Testament or the New Testament for that matter. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers also shows up in the latter paragraph, the last paragraph of Deuteronomy 17 as the king is being given a positive command. So he's given warnings in verses 14 through 17. Don't acquire many horses. Don't cause your people to acquire many horses. Don't acquire many wives. Don't acquire excessive silver and gold. And oh, by the way, just like with the horses and the wives, you might ask, well, how much is too much silver and gold? And the answer would be, however much would turn away your heart from Yahweh God. That's how you know it's too much. If another one, or even the number that you have right now, would turn your heart away, well, then don't add anymore. That's enough. That's enough. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. But in the next paragraph, we have the positive. So we have the warnings, which basically amount to moderation. Moderation and not a hard and fast rule the way that many today want to revise such passages. In verses 18 through the end of the chapter, the king is told to write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And so what do you have there? You have the king as part of his kingly duties and as a reminder of why he is king in the first place and also as a way of teaching him to fear Yahweh, to serve Yahweh, to lead the people by example in serving Yahweh, he is going to copy the law. And the priests, the Levitical priests, are going to double-check his work. They're going to, in some sense, have a check and balance on him that he is copying accurately. And what is that, in essence, in some sense, that's a preview of the idea that we have checks and balances in the United States of America, in our government, at least in theory. The way that it was framed, you have three branches of government. You have judicial, for instance, the Supreme Court overseeing the process of vetting if there's a complaint about an executive action by the President of the United States of America, or if there is a concern as to the constitutionality of a law passed by the House and the Senate, the Supreme Court double-checks their work to see, does this fit? Does this match? Is this accurate? Is this consistent? In some sense, 
Believe it or not, you have the Levitical priests doing that kind of thing for the king as he is making a copy. He is writing for himself a copy of the law. But why, right? Why is that important? Well, we read on. Verse 20 gives us one reason, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so in essence, the answer to the question is, this is going to help him to stay humble. And this is going to help him to stay reverent and obedient and faithful to God. This will help him to have a right relationship with his subjects, who are still referred to as his brothers. He may be king, but these are still his brothers, king or no king. And it's a priority to God that the heart of the king not be lifted up above his brothers. Why? We know why. When a king becomes haughty and wise in his own eyes, he can act very carelessly or very cruelly and very tyrannically and very oppressively towards his subjects, towards those who were formerly his peers as a way of getting back at them or getting even or trying to prove that he is better. He's got all this power. He's going to prove that he's better by tormenting them, harassing them, or else destroying them. And God doesn't want that. Don't turn aside from the commandment. What commandment? The commandment of Yahweh. Well, which one? All of them. (laughs) All of them. Don't turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. And then there's a personal stake. What's in it for the king? Continuing to be king is in it for the king, which is, again, to give credence to Samuel Rutherford in Lex Rex. You want to stay king for long. Don't become wise in your own eyes. Don't lift up your heart above your brothers. You want to have a long reign Do you want your children after you to become king in their stead over Israel? If you're king, obey. Obey Yahweh. Be under authority. Be in subjection yourself to God's authority. Otherwise, just as both God is choosing and the people are setting the king, God will choose to take the kingdom away from you and the people will also choose to unset you and remove you. And that's exactly what we saw with Israel's first king, Saul. But enough for now about Deuteronomy 17. Let's get into some current events items in this episode. First, let's take a look at a post by Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee. It looks like the older generations were right. Study shows joint bank account makes couples happier. Here is... A fun fact, (laughs) Uh, I and my wife have always had a joint bank account for our entire marriage. We have never had separate bank accounts, but it actually was her name on the account first because in college she got an account with US Bank. I had been banking with a different bank in Hillsborough before we went off to college at Cedarville. And when we got married, I just said, hey, let's just combine. Let's get my name added. And in hindsight, maybe symbolically, it would have been better for me to get a new account and say, all right, let's close hers and then have her be added to mine. But such as it was, we did it the way that we did it. And 
Both our names have been on our bank account, our joint bank account, since the beginning. Now, in contrast, I'll say my wife's parents, my parents-in-law, when we were dating, I distinctly remember knowing that they had separate bank accounts. And that always bothered me. I mean, no disrespect to my father-in-law. My mother-in-law has passed away. I mean, no disrespect to my father-in-law when I say this, but I think that's not such a good idea. And I know that that was kind of a thing for decades, that if both the man and the woman are working, they have separate bank accounts so that they can keep track of whose money is whose. And if the wife is working and earning and she wants to buy something, well, then she can just buy it from the money that she's earning. And the husband, meanwhile, doesn't worry about it, doesn't get into any kind of strife with his bride over questions of, well, should we buy that or should we save for something else or should we any of that, right? None of that happens, or at least that was the idea. Plus also symbolically, it's for many people, in broader society, a sign of the woman showing that she is independent and empowered. Now, I don't know what the reasons are for why my in-laws, my father-in-law and mother-in-law had uh, separate bank accounts. They might have had totally different reasons, not at all related to what everybody else was doing back in the day. But I'll at least say my reasons, mine and my wife's reasons, for why we have had a joint bank account every step of the way. For one thing, I am the head of the household. I am the husband. My wife is supposed to follow my lead. She's supposed to submit to me in everything. I'm supposed to not be a tyrant, of course, just like the king is told to not get a big head. Husbands need to be humble and under the authority of God, just like the king needs to be in subjection to the authority of God. Husbands need to be in subjection to the authority of God. Otherwise, maybe don't start with how everybody needs to be under your authority. Start with you being under authority. But I digress, but not really, because that's the secret. That's the key. Uh, My wife and I, believing that that's what the Bible communicates of God's purpose for marriage, would have zero reason. We have no reason when we believe that for wanting separate bank accounts. Now, early on in our marriage, Lauren worked, I worked. I went off to my job and she, for a time, worked as an STNA at some nursing homes in the area. She worked for a time for the library, a few libraries, and she was making money and she could have had a separate bank account And she would have had money to put into that separate bank account. That's not what we did, right? That's not what we did because why? Because what's hers is mine and what's mine is ours. And we're trying to provide for and take care of and feed and clothe and all the rest, the same children, not different children, the same children. We're trying to feed and clothe ourselves and one another, trying to serve one another why wouldn't we just put it all in one account and have that be that? I think personally, this study that's being cited, and you can check out the link in the description for this podcast episode. If you want to read the rest of the study, by all means, go check it out. But I think the reason for couples being happier 
when they have a joint bank account, husbands and wives being happier, is because the wife is supposed to be in submission to her husband. And it's probably not just the bank account, right? It's kind of a package deal. If they believe that the wife is supposed to be subject to her husband, whether or not they do it perfectly, whether or not they get it all right, they're farsight, more harmonious, and less frustrated doing the marriage thing the way that God would have them to do it versus the couples where it's a constant arm wrestling contest and usually because the man is stronger in that way, the woman is looking for ways to wear him down, nag him, undermine him if she wants to be actually the one who is calling the shots. She wants to be the one saying this is what we're going to do. This study does not surprise me at all because this is how God has designed us. He's designed us in such a way that the husband is supposed to be head of his wife. She is supposed to submit to him in all things, which things? All things, as unto the Lord. And he, in turn, is supposed to be subject to God's authority, and he's supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So good stuff here. I'm glad the stats bear it out. It won't convince the people who are invested, no pun intended, in egalitarianism, but egalitarianism is not biblical. It is really not biblical. You will have people who try to make a tortured argument for why it is. They're wrong. (laughs) They're wrong. They may seem correct if they're the first to state their case, but if the second comes and examines them, you will see that they are badly mistaken. They are very badly wrong. And a whole lot of strife and pain and heartache and frustration and disappointment and broken homes have resulted Broken children have resulted from the pursuit of radical egalitarianism. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No thank you on the egalitarianism thing. Moving on, though. Speaking of studying the Bible, copying the Bible after a fashion requires that you read it. If you're going to commit it to memory, if you're going to meditate on it, you should probably read it. And somebody who is very much in the news here lately, and he was on the news for years and years until Fox shut down his very, very popular cable news program because he was upsetting the wrong people. Tucker Carlson spoke here recently at a family leadership summit that was held in Iowa that was really fantastic. I've spoken about this in recent episodes, playing some clips from interviews that he conducted with candidates for president who are bidding for the Republican nomination. But here is Tucker Carlson himself being interviewed about how he has taken here recently, this year, to reading the Bible cover to cover. He's going to commit to that. He is working on it. He's working through it. In his own words, listen to what that has done for him and what he's starting to realize. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen most important election of, of our lifetime. How do you explain? Well, I'm clinging to the hope that elections still matter. I, I really want to believe that because I'm, I'm American in a very fundamental way. And so I believe in, in, the, in the actual mechanics of democracy, like the people should rule, you know. Um, so, uh, but leaving aside even elections, I think it's clearly a pivot point in history. And I don't think the issues that we debate and really are in some ways distractions are the core issues mm. at all. I mean, it really, there are forces, unseen forces acting on people. Um, It's funny, in February, 
I was like trying to think about what to do for Lent. I'm not a particularly faithful or virtuous person, but like you try to do something. I already quit smoking, so like what's next? <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm just going to read the Bible. And no, I'm not going to do a Bible study. I'm a Protestant, so I feel like I have a right to kind of read it myself. And I know, I'm sorry. I feel that way. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've been reading it since February, and I'm like about halfway done. And, and I haven't talked to anyone about it. And I haven't been in it, just been myself reading it. And, and I've all kind of, it's like the most interesting thing I think I've ever done, actually. Mm. It's unbelievable. The amount of drama in those books <laughs> that has been hidden from me as a regular churchgoer in the Episcopal Church. Like, wait, why didn't you never mention this? This is like unbelievable. <laughs> what? But the two things I have come away with after reading the entire New Testament, and I'm up to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, is the every, per, with the exception of Jesus, Every figure is, like, really flawed. Big time. Like, flawed in a way where you'd be like, I don't know if I could be friends with that person. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Abraham enters Egypt, and he's like, oh, it's my sister, actually. Take her. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I was saying to my wife, who was a, who was a religion teacher, I was like, what, why didn't anyone? What is that? And she's like, maybe the point is that God takes people who are not perfect people, not only not perfect people, like, they're so imperfect again, I don't think I can have dinner with them, and uses them for these grander purposes. That's the first thing I notice. The second thing I notice is that people, while they have free will, of course, and they can make decisions and they live with the consequences of those decisions, they're not really in charge of the arc of history at all. Mm. They are being acted upon a lot. Amen. Okay? And I never really appreciated that because I'm American, and so I grew up with this feeling that we're the sum total of our choices. Well, that's not what I'm reading at all. Yeah, people's choices matter. You need to do certain things and not do other things. On the other hand, you are not in charge. You are being acted upon by a world you can't see. And that, by the way, is consistent with my life experience. Like, I've seen that. I've lived that. I'm 54. And so I feel like it's really important to approach politics with that in mind. Like, a lot of these issues are symbols of this much larger battle. And, and the final thing I will say is I do think we should approach these questions with humility. Amen. You know, we don't always know. I was at dinner last night at 801, which I strongly recommend. Surprisingly good lobster, kind of weird for Iowa. I'm like, is this from the coast of Iowa? No. But it was good. But anyway, we were talking about candidates, and I was eating with someone who's a Christian, and I, and I said, I can't, honestly, I can't tell if this person is a tool of light or darkness. You know what I mean? Um, so we don't always know, actually, at all. And we should always admit that. You know, I've got very strong feelings about all kinds of issues, but it's so important to be open to the possibility that I'm completely wrong. And that what I'm espousing is actually destructive, not constructive. Um, so just to, to approach it with, with humility. And that is great stuff. <laughs> That's exactly right. And good for you, Tucker Carlson. Absolutely. More of this, please. More of this. Uh, I would love to hear that the men who are running for president are doing something similar. They really should be. That should be a prereq. <laughs> you get asked, at least, are you reading your Bible? Uh, yeah, maybe some people would say that's a religious test. I will say, just personally, if I heard candidates talking like this and actually meaning it, that would be a big mark in their favor for whether they would make a good president. If it was a good prereq for kings over Israel, that they were making a copy of the law, which is to say they would have to read it carefully and closely in order to copy it, 
Well, then I think it's a good metric. It's a good thing to look for in men who would run for president. And that isn't to say I think Tucker Carlson should run for president. And I don't think that you have to be reading the Bible cover to cover every year in order to be a president. And I don't think that (laughs) you only read the Bible cover to cover if you're hoping to run for president, but even just evaluating, just assessing who you should set or how you should conduct interviews, for instance. Is it possible that maybe just maybe some of the boldness that Tucker Carlson is displaying here in recent months is coming from that place of reading the Bible cover to cover this year? Is it possible? I think it's entirely possible. I think it's entirely plausible. And I think he's right. We do need to be coming to the issues, the questions, the debates, even the assessment of various figures that want to be president. They're asking for your vote. I think it's important for us to be reading God's word and having the mind of Christ and having humility, humility before God, and then also humility before the issues that in many cases we have not been given the mind of Christ on in pretty much every case, most cases, because our popular culture has not just become so secular, but it's become hostile to Christianity. What we've been given again and again is the most rebellious possible take, similar to the women's empowerment thing and feminism. In every other category, the individual wants to assert as part of this larger movement that they are an empowered, liberated person. Liberated from what? Liberated from the commands of God. Liberated from the promises of God. Liberated from the responsibilities that God has given them, not just the rights, but the responsibilities. And oh, by the way, while we're talking about rights and responsibilities, just briefly, did you catch that there is an explicit mention of rights in Deuteronomy 17? It was there. It was there. There was an extended paragraph regarding legal decisions by priests and judges. And right there, it says in verse 8, If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right, legal right, legal right, (laughs) and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, that means that there is such a thing as a legal right. And it is part of justice that you recognize that there are legal rights, not just legal wrongs, there are legal rights. But I digress. Consider that Tucker Carlson is trying to figure out what is true. And also, by the way, he mentions in passing that his wife is a religion teacher. He doesn't get into that. He doesn't go into depth. I don't know exactly what that means. If she's a professor, if she's a teacher at the boarding school that is associated with her family, I don't know. I don't know what all that portends or what that means. But I will say just briefly, touching on marriage again, did you know that Tucker Carlson and his wife, Susan Andrews, were high school sweethearts and that they have been married for over 30 years. That's a fun fact. That's cool. That's neat. Uh, Also, oh, by the way, he mentions that he grew up Episcopalian and they don't typically get into the Bible. They don't read through, talk through, preach through, study most of the Bible, which tells you quite a lot of how they've gotten into so much of the 
confusion regarding gender and sexuality in recent years. So many Episcopalians have, not all, but he's very honest about that. And he says, comically, I grew up Episcopalian. We don't read our Bibles, but what is he doing? He's reading his Bible. He says, I don't think I need to go to a Bible study and have someone else, somebody who's an approved authority, tell me what the Bible says. I'm a Protestant. I happen to believe I can read the Bible for myself. Thank you very much. And that's great. That isn't to say don't ever consult, but it is to say you should read for yourself. So kudos to Tucker Carlson. We should all do likewise. Interesting that he points out he's read through the entire New Testament And now he's up to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Where do we happen to be? In Deuteronomy. Good stuff. Maybe he listens. Hey, Tucker, if you're out there, if you are listening, uh, drop me a line sometime. I'd love to hear from you. He's probably not. But still, I'm reading through the Bible cover to cover this year. And I think it's good. I think it's important to read the whole of God's word in context and not just allow other people to cherry pick even with the best of intentions, because even with the best of intentions, they miss things. And again, 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 the first to state his case seems correct, seems correct, seems correct, until the second comes and examines him. If some things we have heard others tell us as a distilled summation of what they've read in the Bible seem correct, well, we should go and examine that and be Bereans about it and search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. And what we might find is they are correct. They seem correct. They are correct. And we can have full confidence in agreeing with them where they're correct. And in other cases, we might find that they seem correct, but they're not actually. That's not quite true. And here is what the rest of that chapter says. Here is the rest of the story. Oh, by the way, not a small point here. A big point, I think this is how it came to be that Western Europe and the United States of America in particular developed such good critical thinking skills and a much more robust political science than other parts of the world. It is because of Protestants having the Bible to read, to study in their own language and having a culture which encouraged and even required literacy so you could read the Bible, so you could study the Bible for yourself and know whether these things were so. That is a particularly Protestant value, not to say Roman Catholics don't ever read their Bibles. It's not to say that Roman Catholicism doesn't promote literacy, but it's not the same. It's not the same as the Protestant emphasis on whatever the priest would tell you, whatever the Pope would tell you, whatever the councils would tell you, read it for yourself, be a Berean about it. When that mindset, and it always has, and it always will, when that mindset with regards to the biblical text finds its equivalent with regards to political matters or societal questions or cultural conflict, the Christian who has gotten into the habit of going back to the word, going back to the word, going back to the word, they don't only do it to double check the math for authorities in the church. They also do it with regards to authorities in the academy, in their businesses, in government of a civil nature, as they ought to, as we should. Now, briefly, I'm going to play for you cut two. This from 
an interview that Ice Cube, of all people, there's a transition for you, Ice Cube had with Pierce Morgan. Pierce Morgan interviewed Ice Cube, I should say. And I'll play the clip without giving an intro, and then I'll unpack why I think this is relevant, why this pertains. Here it is. Cut to. Take a listen. You turned down a $9 million movie role in 2021 because you wouldn't take uh, the COVID vaccine. It was being mandated in Hollywood at the time. Any regrets? There's a lot of money. Not at all. Not one regret. You know my thought when I heard that story? You must be even richer than I think you are. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody can use $9 million. I don't care how rich they think they are. Mm. You know, everybody can use that money. I could have used that money. My family could have used that money. But... I felt like, you know, your health is worth more than all the money in the world. Because if you had all the money in the world and you wasn't healthy, you would you would use that money to get healthy. So um, to me, it was an experimental drug and um, they had no time to really see the long-term effects. Like most, and I'm vaccinated. I've been vaccinated mm-hmm. when I was a kid but these are drugs that have been tested for decades. And, you know, pretty much most of the side effects... I mean, ultimately, I felt about COVID vaccines that once it was established against what they initially thought, that you could still transmit the virus, whether you were vaccinated or not, to me, it becomes a personal choice. Then it's down to you. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies made a lot of money. Um, Businesses closed. You know, it, it was... a. It's, it's like an incentive, even when things are not going right, to keep going. Mm. Um, it's kind of like the war machine. You know, if, if you make the bullets and the Band-Aids, you're going to always want to be in war because it's profitable. Okay, so <laughs> great stuff. Kudos to Ice Cube. Very cool. No pun intended. Kudos to him because that's sense he's talking And it reminds me of Jesus asking the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I think that's actually a large part of what he's getting at more than just physical health. When he starts talking about COVID lockdowns, businesses destroyed, liberties, legal rights suspended across the board, because supposedly we are all at risk of dying from this sickness, this illness, this virus that was cooked up in a lab in China. You know, when he starts talking about if you take the money and you take the shot, you are feeding that. You are buying into that or you're helping to facilitate it. He's talking about something other than just physical health. He's talking about moral health. He's talking about integrity. He's talking about a good conscience. He's talking about what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's what he's talking about. And, oh, by the way, I think Tucker Carlson is another good example of this where he started saying true things and he asked questions that the powers that be don't want people asking because they do make the bullets and the band-aids in all of their figurative senses. They make the bullets and the band-aids and they make money on all sides of the conflict when they keep on stirring up conflict. If you start asking questions, if you start probing and you start holding people accountable, 
in a public way and you have a large audience and what's at risk is your multi, multi, multi million dollars per year, your fame, your fortune, your reputation with those powers that be, and you do it anyways and you keep on doing it, well, you've made the right choice. You've chosen wisely as the old knight says in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You have chosen wisely. You chose the cup of humility instead of the jewel and gold blingy chalice that wouldn't be in keeping, actually. It wouldn't be the kind of cup that Christ would have drunk from. You've chosen wisely. Speaking of choosing wisely, here's a funny story going back to not the bee for a moment. Hamilton Porter published a piece July 17th, that is the day before yesterday. Ken Ham's Ark Encounter is sponsoring the rain delays at Cincinnati Reds baseball games. And no, this is not made up. Here's the tweet from Ken Ham, and I quote, The Ark Encounter is sponsoring rain delays for the Cincinnati Reds. It was exciting to see a double rainbow during a rain delay at the Cincinnati Reds game Saturday evening as storms went through the area. Many pictures and videos were taken and shared all across social media along with the Ark Encounter rain delay sponsorship sign. We are also sponsoring Faith Day on August 5th at the Cincinnati Reds game, so we encourage you to come out and visit with us. Enjoy some of the photos people sent to us and shared on social media. And there are some great photos. You can check out the link in the description for this podcast episode if you want to see for yourself. They really are fantastic. The Jumbotron features on both sides, big, can't miss it, graphics for the Ark Encounter and in the skies over and behind the jumbotron, you see the double rainbow, and you love to see it if you are a young earth creationist like I am. This is brilliant. It's brilliant. It's very funny <laughs> uh, because what's being communicated there? The rainbow does not belong to Ashroth. The rainbow does not belong to the neo-pagans. The rainbow does not belong to the lesbians and the bisexuals and the gays and the transgendered and the queer, and the pedophiles. The rainbow belongs to God. God said he was going to put the rainbow in the heavens as a reminder that he would never again destroy all life on earth with a flood of waters. And that's what we should think when we see the rainbow. The pagans want to try and co-opt that symbol. And in many of our minds, they have Kudos to Ken Ham and the Answers in Genesis crowd for doing this in a very public way, engaging in the public discourse in this way. I think it's funny. I think it's charming. I think it's witty. And if people will go check out The Ark Encounter from everything I've heard, they won't be disappointed. I've heard it is just a remarkable experience to see what the Ark might have looked like, to see the scale of it. They have some really great exhibits at the Answers in Genesis Museum, the Creation Museum, right there as well in Kentucky. I've been, my family's been, my wife and I have been, our older kids have been. Uh, the younger ones haven't. We moved to Montana before the younger four were born. But we were there on opening day. I grew up reading and listening to Answers in Genesis material. I've met Ken Ham. I've heard him speak several times in Southern Ohio. I respect him immensely. I respect the work that Answers in Genesis has done immensely. I think they're a great resource. 
And in some sense, my engagement in the political space is inspired by their engagement in science. Because I think just like we need Christians doing biology and chemistry and astrophysics, et cetera, et cetera, all these physical sciences, Christians need to be studying and interpreting in a way that glorifies God. I also believe Christians need to be doing political science in the exact same way for the same reason, from the same heart. And so here we are. But again, kudos to Ken Ham and the Answers in Genesis crowd. Check out the pictures when you get a chance. But again, what was I saying about the rainbow and how the sexual deviants have tried to co-opt it? They want it to remind you of their relentless pursuit of a new religion that has to do with liberating yourself from the commands of God regarding sexuality, regarding gender, really regarding everything, anything you would do. They want you to rebel against God with them, just like Satan. (laughs) Ryan Saavedra's got a great bit of reporting over at the Daily Wire about Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, running for president, giving a speech speaking at an event in South Carolina on Monday, DeSantis torches leftist LGBT agitator at campaign event. Leave our kids alone. I'll play the audio for you. It's not long, but I think this is how you do it. Here it is. Cut three. Take a listen. He's sitting here talking about uh, all of our children. I have something to say to him. Why don't you focus on spending more time with your granddaughter in Arkansas or at least acknowledge she exists. Before you worry about our children. And they shouldn't be worrying about our children either. We don't want you indoctrinating our children. Leave our kids alone. And it's as simple as that. (laughs) Leave our kids alone. Stop trying to get our kids alone with you in myriad ways. Stop trying to brainwash them into joining your cult, your neo-pagan cult. Stop trying to corrupt our kids. Stop trying to groom our kids. Stop trying to molest our kids intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and yes, also physically. What was going on? that you couldn't see if you were just listening to the audio is some LGBTQ plus 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 activists in the background stood up to try and disrupt this event and unfurled a big rainbow flag as a way of saying, aha, see, we will raise our flag over your movement as well, just like we are so many other movements and security. I'm sure with the Ron DeSantis campaign escorted the agitators out because they're not there to participate in a conversation. They're not there to have a dialogue. They're there to disrupt. They're there to shut down the event. And what does Ron DeSantis say? As the crowd that is assembled to hear him speak, claps, cheers, stands to their feet to applaud. He says, leave our kids alone. And it really is as simple as that. If that's not the purview of government, then government has no role and we will have anarchy. We we will have anarchy. If the government 
is not going to protect our kids if we don't have people like Ron DeSantis running on protecting our children, then we will have anarchy instead. Or we will have absolute tyranny, whether despotic democracy, as de Tocqueville would call it, or a totalitarian aristocracy that is not really the best men, it's the worst men. They just happen to have a lot of money and they will use it to crush you. If you still have a soul, they've given up theirs, they sold theirs to the devil, they will use all of the money that they got in return for their souls to try and crush you until you also are willing to sell your soul. Kudos to Ron DeSantis, kudos to Casey DeSantis for tweeting this out. Quote, we don't want you indoctrinating our children. As her husband said, kudos to Casey and Ron DeSantis. This is great. This is really good stuff. For our next story to consider, I want you to listen to an interview with Helen Joyce. Helen Joyce is an editor for The Economist. She's got a PhD in mathematics from University College London. She here with Peter Bogosian explains some things that we need to know about what's driving the energy on the left among those who are demanding affirmation, demanding accommodation, demanding acceptance of the transgender movement right now, men in women's bathrooms, locker rooms, showers, etc. The use of preferred pronouns, gender mutilation, surgery for children, hormone therapy, gender theory, indoctrination in the schools, the whole works. Here is Helen Joyce with about two and a half minutes of insight that you need to know. You need to know this and keep it in mind as you encounter people who very, very much, very much are for these things. Here's cut four. Take a listen. Something that you may not have thought of is that there's a lot of people who can't move on on this and um, because that's the people who've transitioned their own children. So those people are going to be like, you know, the Japanese soldiers who were on Pacific Islands and didn't know the war was over. Right. They've got to fight forever. This is why this is another reason why this is the worst, worst, worst social contagion that we'll ever have experienced. A lot of people have done the worst thing that you could do, which is to harm their children irrevocably because of it. Those people will have to believe that they did the right thing for the rest of their lives, for their own sanity and for their own self-respect. So they'll still be fighting. And each one of those people destroys entire organizations and entire friendship groups. Like I've lost count of the number of times that somebody has said to me of a specific organization that has got turned upside down on this. Oh, the deputy director has a trans child or, you know, oh, the journalist on that paper who does special investigations has a trans child or whatever. The entire organization gets paralyzed by that one person. And it may not even be widely known at the organization that they have a trans child, but it will come out like people will have sort of said it quietly. And now you can't talk truth in front of that person. And you know you can't. Because what you're saying is you as a parent have done a truly like human rights abuse yes. level of awful thing to your child that cannot be fixed. There are specific individuals who are really actively against women's rights here. And it's not known why they are. But I happen to know through the back channels that it's because they've trans their child. And so those people will do anything for the entire rest of their lives to destroy me and people like me, because people like me are a standing reproach to them. I don't want to be. I'm not talking directly to them. I don't spend my time bitching about them. But the fact is that just simply by saying, 
we will never accept natal males in women's spaces. Well, it's their son that we're talking about. And they've told their son that he can get himself sterilised and destroy his, his um, sexual function and women will accept him as a woman. And if we don't, there's no way back for them and their child. They've sold their child a bill of goods that they can't deliver on. And I'm the one who has to be bullied to try to force me to deliver on it. So, th so those people are going to be the people who will keep this bloody movement going, I'm sorry to say, because they've everything to lose. And it's a fight to the death as far as they're concerned. And of course, that's correct. Of course, she's right. And that makes intuitive sense. And oh, by the way, it's not just on this issue. It's on also the question of homeschooling. There are a lot of parents who are still opposed to homeschooling because they have sent their kids to public school. And now that's where they've invested their reputation not just with the broader public, but with their own kids. And if you start questioning whether that was a good choice, that is a good choice in the real time, or it was a good choice if their kids have all moved on, they've grown up, they've graduated from public high schools and public middle schools, et cetera, et cetera. If their kids have moved on, it's very difficult for them to admit that, you know what, we made a mistake. Maybe the schools weren't so much better years ago. Maybe they weren't so good. Maybe these things go deeper than we we're willing to recognize, but you know what? <laughs> uh, biblically speaking, repentance is not you just saying, hey, I'm going to do something different now. No, repentance is you admit what you were doing was wrong. It was evil. It was sinful. It was wicked. And you turn from that. Not everybody repents. And why do people not repent when they don't repent? It's because they've hardened their hearts it's because they're stubborn. It's because they're stiff-necked. It's because they are proud. And we have to recognize that pride is a big factor here. If you really love your kids, you're going to be willing to admit when you're wrong. It's as simple as that. If you're not willing to admit you're wrong when you're destroying your child, when all evidence points to this is actually destroying your child, or you have severely damaged them by what you encouraged or what you allowed to be done to them or told to them what you allowed them to be manipulated into. If you're not willing to admit that you're wrong when your child has been destroyed by your actions and other people's actions that you didn't protect them from, if you're not willing to admit it, then maybe you don't actually love your child so much as you claim. If you really love your child and you would do anything for them, you have to be willing to admit when you're wrong. And oh, by the way, this has to be in the context. If you're going to love your child well, it has to be in the context of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's the warning I would give to the folks who are opposed to this gender theory push, transgenderism. When you look at all the harm that's done to men, women, and children by the package deal of egalitarianism and feminism, when you look at the damage that's been done, you can't just cherry pick the things that you don't like and draw the lines wherever you want because that's arbitrary. And in some ways, you're actually affirming the arbitrary but harmful choices of the parents who have allowed their kids to be trans and maybe even sometimes encouraged and facilitated it. 
you're actually supporting the underlying presupposition, which is that we want to be liberated from the commands of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have. So it's not just you. But if you would have grace, you have to confess. And that is to say you have to have one mind. That word confession actually means to be of one mind. You're agreeing with God. To confess your sins is to agree with God that you have sinned. And if you won't do that, if we won't do that, well then these folks, as Helen Joyce is pointing out, are willing to fight to the death. They are willing to go all in for as long as it takes. They are not going to back up. They're not going to back down. The only way to address this is going to be with the power of God in a state of repentance and confession and a contrite heart. Otherwise, it's lost. It's a lost cause. Somebody who has shown a tremendous amount of courage, in my view, in my opinion, is Natalie Klein, a member of Utah's State Education Board who is currently under investigation after posting several social media posts accusing public schools of grooming and brainwashing children with gender ideology. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but suffice to say, her even putting the disclosure that she's speaking personally, she's not speaking on behalf of the State Board of Education, that's not enough. There are people who are invested entirely and they've staked their reputation, they've staked their credibility, and they're not going to turn back. They're not going to give it up. They will destroy her. If they can, they'll at least get her removed, I predict, from the State Board of Education because what she's talking is true in the same way that what Ice Cube was saying about the media with regards to the COVID vaccine was true. With uh, Tucker Carlson questioning things on his Fox News program, the same way that that couldn't be born because it was offending and upsetting powerful people. So also, I predict she'll probably be removed. That will be the result of the investigation into Natalie Klein in Utah. But it's still good that she's doing it. And the more people who are willing to show that kind of courage, the more people there will be who are willing to show that kind of courage and band together to get this overturned and to have collective repentance, a collective confession and turning away from sin. But it needs to be that we confess our sins to God. We need to have national days of prayer and mourning over this. We're not ready for that yet. And I think there's a long, hard road to get to that point for most people, most Americans, even those who are speaking up right now to protect their children. They're going to have to have a total transformation of their hearts and their minds. And they're going to have to do what Tucker Carlson is doing in reading their Bibles and listening to the voice of God, turning and seeking God's face, asking for mercy, which is there. It's there in abundance. It is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for us. His strength his strength is shown perfectly in weakness. It's sufficient for us, but we have to be in agreement with God. We have to agree with God that we have sinned. That's what confession is. And we have to repent, which is to say we turn away from disobedience, we turn towards obedience. We turn away from unbelief, we turn towards belief. We turn away from rebellion, and we turn towards 
living in the promises of God. And if we do that, yes, it will be difficult. Yes, people will hate us for it, but there's a reward. And Jesus promises that. We see that Old Testament and New Testament, that is the mind of God with regards to those who call on him. He will hear those who call on him. He will heal them. And that's what we want. That's what the big idea is. It's not just to complain. It's to be restored. Hopefully that can happen, but it's going to take a miracle. One last story I want to give you, though, as a cautionary tale for what may happen if we don't confess and repent, if we don't turn to God, and if we think that we can just deal with the transgenderism issue, just deal with the aggressive homosexuality thing in the public square. Not to be staff has a piece up from the day before yesterday about Russia officially banning medical interventions aimed at changing the sex of a person. They have, in the country of Russia, barred also transgendered persons from being foster or adoptive parents. This is a good move. This is right. They are right to do this. It's appropriate. How do we know that? Because it more closely conforms, at least, than our laws here in the U.S. at a national level. This more closely comports with ratifying the laws of God. That's what Edmund Burke would say is our lot. That's what all human government has as a choice, either to ratify or to abolish the laws of God, either to agree with God or to disagree with God. But here's my caution. Here's my warning. Russia doing the right thing here does not mean that Russia is a good country. Putin overseeing this move does not mean that Putin is a good guy. This is a good move. This is a good direction to go on this particular issue. But this really does highlight what I'm trying to say to my countrymen here in the U.S. about not just tackling the transgender moment by itself. It does need to be a package deal where you say we're rejecting egalitarianism, we're rejecting gender theory, we're rejecting the LGBTQ plus push, we're rejecting leftism, we're rejecting this whole Rousseauian idea that the ideal is man in a state of nature apart from any outside requirements from God ultimately. We have to look at what Russia is doing here and not sanctify their larger character as a country or as a people because Putin is not a good guy. Putin is not a good guy. The Russian government is not a good government just because they're doing a good thing here. But, and here's where I will ruffle some feathers, it's possible, just like uh, Babylon and Assyria were allowed to overcome Israel and Judah, and God favored those pagan countries, those evil, corrupt, cruel countries over and against Israel and Judah, because Israel and Judah had become so disobedient, so rebellious, so wicked, so sinful, so idolatrous, so unjust. It's possible that in the coming decades, God will give the world over to Russia and China. And it seems increasingly plausible that that is 
what is going to happen because we keep on not repenting as a people. We keep on not turning as one people, as one man to seek the Lord's face. If we see this and we say, well, maybe Russia is not so bad. And then you have certain people who want to imitate Russia in this country because they think that's the package deal. That would be a great folly. That would be a great error. Instead, we should be looking to God's word to establish what is good and true, not just on the gender question, not just on the sexuality question, but on every question, on every subject. As an aside, going back to the story about the state board of education member who is under investigation for social media posts, what we see right now with social media is, on the one hand, conservatives engaging as if these spaces are the public square, as if Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, etc., are the forum, are the place that the citizens of the city, the state, the nation go to discuss their business and to make decisions together, to try and persuade one another, to try and argue their perspectives. We think that that's what these spaces are. In actual fact, there are radical leftists who want these spaces to be more like re-education camps. You will say one kind of thing that points in one direction. And if you stop saying that thing, if you start peeling back the curtain and calling for accountability, the men behind the curtain have lifted up their hearts in a haughty way above their brothers because they think not just that they're kings, but that they are the kingmakers. And even at the very, very top, they don't just think of themselves as kings and emperors in an old-fashioned sense. They think of themselves as something like gods. And they make very poor gods. They're very arbitrary, very capricious. You will find indiscretions if you look. But because they have hardened their hearts against Yahweh God, they will react with a great amount of hostility and caprice if you call them to repentance. And if you warn others, and if you say, hey, stop empowering these people, they are corrupt, they're wicked, they're evil men, they pervert justice. If you start saying those kinds of things in what you think is the public square, what you will find is very quickly you're under investigation, people go on fishing expeditions looking for something to use as an excuse to remove you. And they will make you, if they can, submit to re-education. Unfortunately, what that's all too similar to, what that's all too reminiscent of, is what the Russian communists and the Chinese communists did with their detractors, with their critics, with their opponents. And so, my friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. If there's not repentance in this country, one way or, the, one way or another, it's going to be as bad as us actually being ruled by Russia and China if we are not, in fact, ruled by Russia and China. If God does not give us over to being dominated and conquered by Russia and China, it will be as bad as that because those ideas, those values are what rule us and what rule the hearts and minds of the men who decide what we can say, what we can do, what we believe, what we feel, what we think, where we can go, who we can work for, what we can buy, what we can sell, what we can trade, and on what basis. If we don't turn and seek the Lord's face in a comprehensive way and search his word, that is where we're headed 
as a people, as a country here in the United States. That's where America is headed. And that's where the rest of the so-called free world is headed as well. I would warn my international audience, don't just do whatever America is doing. Warn your countrymen not to just do whatever America is doing. Do what God calls us to. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.